Hello, this is Katherine Cunningham. Thank you for joining us for the Natural Intelligence Worldwide Podcast. After 25 years of national and international policy work in development, environment, health, climate change, and children's rights, Olaf Shervin, my guest this week, now stands at the nexus of all these UN focal areas, working on the future of food, health, and agriculture. Olaf is the Chief Strategy Officer at the EAT Foundation in Oslo, Norway. EAT's mission is to transform our global food system from field to fork through science-centered novel policies, programs, and partnerships. Olaf and I spoke together at the UN Summit in New York about the future of food production, nutrition, soil health, and food waste to food wealth. I laid out our seemingly mission impossible sustainable development challenge of increasing food production by 70% while reserving 50% of the land for wildlife habitat to accommodate our growing population. Olaf calmly and confidently replied that if we really take a look at present agricultural use, there's actually a lot of fat in the system. We allocate 40% at least of productive land to stable crops to feed cattle. We waste nearly 40% of food production field to fork, and it just doesn't have to be that way. We can use simple technologies like good old compost to reduce waste, nutrify soil, and sink carbon. We can apply a convergence of other technologies to create great efficiencies in agriculture production. We can educate better about how to reduce food waste and converge toward healthier diets in the family home. Actually, it's quite exhilarating to talk to Olaf. There seems an abundance of simple ways each one of us can transform our health and the health of the planet simply by making better conscious food choices. So let's listen into Olaf and how to eat well, live healthy, and sustain our planet. So I'm here with Olaf Shervin, who is the Chief Strategy Officer for the EAT Foundation. We've known each other for quite a number of years when you were working, obviously, at UNDP on development issues and then to UNICEF working for children. Now you're working on the food. Mm. So is there a narrative there? Is there a, a life sort of journey toward working on these, these different issues? How are they all combined? How is development sort of focus on youth and future generations and food? How is that all sort of converge for you? No, it definitely journey. converges. You know, one of the things that I had the honor of being a part of when I worked for UNDP and also UNICEF was to contribute to the efforts that led to the Sustainable Development Goals and which is you know, all about you know, taking integrated cross-sector action to solve the greatest challenges that we're faced with today. And you know, for me, joining the EAT Foundation, which is dedicated to healthy and sustainable food, is very much in the spirit of the SDGs. It's really about bringing all relevant stakeholders together around the table to address the challenges that have to do with the way we produce and consume food, which actually is one of the biggest problems we have today in terms of having any chance of achieving the SDGs and meeting the Paris commitment on climate change. But therein also lies the great opportunity space, right? That if we start to get it right on food, if we can shift production towards what's healthy and sustainable and shift diets while we're at it so that we learn to eat what's good for our own health and also good for the planet, we can actually achieve the SDGs and we can create a better future for humanity on a safe planet. So that's how it all comes together. And of course, 
children and young people are really on the front lines of bringing about that change. So this is why I've been very happy after I joined E to be able to strike a partnership with UNICEF to work together to mobilize the voice of children for the changes that are needed. And of course, you have to be totally in awe and inspired by what a kid has done recently to really bring attention to the issues. Greta Thunberg, 60-year-old from Sweden, who has single-handedly started the, the biggest climate movement in history. Oh, it's brilliant. I mean, the youth voice is not only, and it was mentioned here by Amina, the Deputy Secretary General of the UN, that the youth voice is not just about striking and sort of rebelling against you know, sort of a, a narrative from the past, but actually working to help participate and be part of a voice and sort of solutions for the future. So as far as involving UNICEF, it's not just about reducing abject poverty and getting to zero hunger, but that we're not just putting calories in people's bellies, but also looking to create opportunities for nutritious lifestyles. Exactly. And so it's about higher quality food production. It's about regenerating soils and producing efficiently. The challenge I've, I guess I've, I've learned in my research in food is that we have now 800 million people who are malnourished and millions more who are malnourished uh, in a, with micronutrients and so and yet we now have to produce for anticipating 9.8 billion people on the planet on maybe create produce 70 percent more food so quantity of food so we're talking quantity and quality and at the same time ensure that we protect at least 50% of our natural yeah. wildlands. So this is a, a huge challenge for food production around our world. So can you talk to us about how we can actually accomplish that, that end? Yes, I mean, when you lay it out like that, it sounds like an almost impossible task. But <laughs> actually, when you start breaking it down, it's not as impossible as it sounds because we are, as you said, we have over the last several decades basically been putting policies in place to expand as much production as possible of calories, starch, meat that increasingly gets processed into what you can only call junk food. And we are living in a world today where 40% of the agricultural lands that are available are basically going into animal feed. So if we take a step back from that and think, okay, what do people actually need to have a nutritious diet day by day? And, and how can we produce that on existing agricultural land to feed 10 billion people for the long term? It's actually not that complicated in a way. Of course, yes, big shifts, big transformations required. But if we start putting in, in place policies that will enable and encourage the production of a great variety of plant-based foods, uh, there can still be space for animal protein in the diet. But you know, if, we, if we shift the emphasis to plant-based foods, we can, in fact, keep 50% of the planet for nature, which we need as humanity in order to have a safe future for humanity, while producing enough food for even 10 billion people. So with the Eat Lancet Commission, which came out with its scientific assessment in January, the parameters, the scientific parameters for that transition has been established. So there is a pathway forward, but it does require political will. We need to change incentives and policies, subsidies, etc. And we need, of course, also behavioral shifts, mm -hmm. which come when people realize that every single day 
you make a decision actually two or three or four times every single day, that has the biggest impact on your own health and the biggest impact on the planet's health, and that is what you decide to eat. The food you decide to buy and the food you decide to eat has the biggest impact on your own health and the biggest impact on the planet's health of anything you do during a day. And if people start to think that way, I don't think we're necessarily too far away from the kind of shift in in thinking, in values, in, uh, in paradigm that can help change the equation quite fast. I know there are innovative companies like the Impossible Burger, which has actually just brokered a deal with Burger King that you can buy a burger which is not necessarily based on protein. I guess it's it's meat protein, protein cells from uh, a cattle opposed Mm. to um, really growing the whole cattle and using that production cycle of the beef Mm -hmm. in order to... uh, Yeah, that's one uh, example of many of the kinds of innovations that are happening that can give you hope. Of course, you always have to have a critical eye on everything that gets put forward as solutions. I firmly believe that the Impossible Burger, as well as many other food tech innovations, can help us. But we just have to make sure that we don't simply substitute a, a relatively unhealthy habit of eating a lot of processed meat with eating something that is also processed, yes, has a lower environmental footprint, but it might be just as bad from a health perspective. It's still great that meat eaters have a, a different kind of alternative to eating you know, large quantities of, of processed meat. Uh, but it's not in and of itself the silver bullet solution. Well, let's talk about, let's take a step back and talk a bit about technology and how technology can, or different, a convergence of different types of technology can actually help us um, be more effective and efficient in the production of our food. Can you give us some examples of different technologies which have been turnkey? Well, you know, where to start? I mean, there's so many elements to that. And just, you know, one key challenge we have is to turn agriculture into a carbon absorbing activity rather than a carbon emitting activity. That's a fundamental transformation of agricultural practices, which again sounds like very daunting, but it's just about kind of putting the pieces together and bringing new practices to the fore and supporting them with policies and incentives in order to bring about that change. And one of the key technologies that can really help us shift away from the current intensive form of agriculture with a lot of chemical inputs, fertilizers, pesticides, etc., and that can reverse the current problem of major emissions from agricultural production is composting. Ah, the technology, yeah. composting. Yeah, right. I mean, it sounds like, but, but it is a technology, and if we take it to scale and we start adding compost to the soils, I mean, it's, it's such a, in many ways, low-tech, simple thing. But if we do that right, and we have companies that are willing to bet on this and take this to scale, we can transform both the soil health and produce much more nutritious food, better food for people, and it can actually absorb large quantities of carbon. How interesting. So a traditional practice or a common practice Mm. in farming or permaculture to just simply take food waste, which is another issue, Mm. and sink it, sink this carbon, because all food is CHOs, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, you know, into the soil, then we essentially turn a carbon-emitting practice of farming into a carbon or move toward a carbon-seeking 
yeah. opportunity, and we revitalize yeah. the soils, and, yeah. we, and we reduce food waste. Yes, and you know, in, in Africa, they have a huge problem now with uh, water hyacinth and invasive species spreading very fast in the Great Lakes, Victoria, Tana, and you know, all these large lakes, Malawi, etc. Mm-hmm. A big problem with water hyacinth. And it turns out that you can harvest that water hyacinth out of the lakes, and you can turn that into fantastic composting material that when you spread it over the fields as compost, it has just this transformative, almost miraculous effect on productivity. And it also, of course, helps absorb carbon into the soil. Let's talk just a second on food waste, because that's also such an important part of the equation and sort of it moves toward consumer behavior. Yes. As I understand it, we went from 36, first 27%, 36%, now 40% of the food from farm to fork, so mm-hmm. from the fields to your table, whether in a restaurant or home, you know, is wasted. 40% yes. of food that's produced is wasted. That just seems unconscionable. Yeah. And uh, there must be ways in which we can really create more efficiencies and reduce that waste. Yes, I mean, that's kind of the biggest uh, no-brainer of all, right? That is something we absolutely have to get on with at scale to significantly reduce food loss and waste uh, from the entire chain, right? From, from the fields and all the way through to the kitchen sink and the wastebasket. In the West, we throw away a lot of food in the households. In developing regions, a lot of the waste and loss is in the fields and, of course, in the process of getting food to markets. There's a lot that can be done on both ends of the, the spectrum. And there's some very interesting initiatives underway. I know the World Bank, for instance, is now floating a food loss and waste bond as a financing tool to support efforts at scale to reduce this problem. And that's, of course, uh, one very big piece of the solution to get actual financing to flow to this purpose, which Mm -hmm. has always been hard. It's not in and of itself enough. You have to also have the right policies in place to to support this. And unfortunately, too many places, you don't have that. Thank you for listening to our Natural Intelligence Worldwide podcast. You can find us at naturalintelligence.com forward slash worldwide. Have a beautiful day.